children's service downstairs. If you do not have a copy of today's uh, outline, study guide, please raise your hand. Um, we'll put one in it. Um, I don't know what happened to the extras from last week, but they're not there anymore, so we'll give you another one. But uh, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> okay, does everyone have one that uh, would like to have one? Very good. Well, for those of you that are just joining us this morning, we are in a study of Luke's Gospel. Uh, we are working our way through Luke. We're not very far yet, by the way. We're in chapter 1 still, verse 26. And uh, Luke is laying the foundation for us of the whole unfolding of the gospel and the development of the church. And uh, we're going to be studying that uh, section by section. I won't say verse by verse because uh, I might not get to finish it. But uh, it could be 20 years from now. But we'll study it section by section. And uh, see how that goes. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And for those of you that were here last week, uh, I am dealing this morning with Roman numeral 2 of the outline. Um, last week we covered 1 and 3. And uh, this morning we're going to cover that middle section on the virgin birth of Christ. But I want to set the context again by looking at the scripture passage. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you bless your word to us this morning. Open our understanding, give us confidence in the truth of your word that we might be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us to those who ask. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it is interesting that um, history has a tendency of repeating itself, and the waxing and waning of spiritual depth and passion 
uh, is somewhat um, obvious uh, as time goes along that people tend to get into the same problems and they also fortunately get out of them in the same way and we can we can see that and perhaps today be praying for revival but today in the evangelical bible believing church and and I say that uh you know with great trepidation because it's neither evangelical nor bible believing in many cases but it is that contingency of the christian faith that claims to be true to the historic uh, principles and, uh, and truthfulness of the gospel. Within evangelicalism today, there is a whole uprising of questioning and challenging concerning the uh, historicity of the gospels and of the scriptures. And among the things that are being called into question, besides the whole case of origins, how did the world and the universe come to be, but beyond that, uh, those who profess to be Bible-believing Christians are today saying things like, well, the virgin birth is not very likely. And uh, the deity of Christ is not very important. And it wouldn't bother me to learn that Jesus may have sinned on occasion. And they're saying things that, according to the surveys, are indicating that they have no clear understanding of what the Scriptures actually teach, and they're completely missing uh, the essential truths of the Scripture, the Gospel, that leads us to a saving kind of faith. The saying goes that those who do not know history are destined to repeat it. And the same thing was happening a hundred years ago uh, in the um, kind of post-Darwinian period as... Uh, the whole uh, kind of Western Enlightenment was uh, developing and people were going to empiricism, science and rationalism as a basis for their understanding of truth, that the whole liberal element within the church began to rise up, questioning the authority of Scripture, questioning the miracles of the Bible, questioning and denying the virgin birth, and all of those kinds of things. In that day, at the beginning of the last century, there were others who came to the fore to defend the historical truth. Um, Benjamin Warfield was among them, J. Gresham Machen, and others who uh, contributed to a series of volumes called The Fundamentals. And consequently, those um, you know, uh, pea-brained, Bible-believing nitwits <laughs> were called the fundamentalists. And the others were kind of the enlightened church, actually the liberal church. Time has gone along. The fundamentalists eventually became the evangelicals. Uh, the transitional difference between, at least the accusation is, is that the fundamentalists were only concerned with doctrine and they had no other concerns whatsoever, uh, you know, about um, social needs and social causes. The real church was invested in the social problems of society, and evangelicalism rose up as kind of fundamentalism with a social conscience. In other words, the church does not just exist to preach the gospel, but to actually minister to the culture, to care for the poor, to give the cup of cold water in Jesus' name, to reach out and be active and alive and involved in the community. 
and yet to hold to those essential foundational truths. Now, today, we are back to a hundred years ago. The true church is again questioning all the foundational elements and calling them up uh, as uh, being um, perhaps too fanciful, uh, unbelievable, uh, beyond the realm of conviction. And so it is with the virgin birth. I want to pose a question to you this morning at the outset, and then I hope to answer that question by the end of the message. Is it possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and deny his virgin birth? Is it possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to deny his virgin birth? If you will look at the outline that I have given you and look at Roman numeral 2, we're going to delve into the scriptures and examine what the claims of Scripture are. It's interesting that in both Luke and in Matthew, the concept of the virgin birth is mentioned three times in each gospel. Now, many would have us say that these authors were very, very thoughtful in crafting their story and that they use this trilogy of presentation as kind of a numerological way of understanding the perfect revelation. I'm not so sure that they were that thoughtful, um, but I do believe that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. And I think God is saying something to us in both Matthew and Luke to three times in each gospel mention the virgin birth in these announcement passages. It's as if God has taken his finger and drawn a big underline under this particular subject that we would not miss it. And if you turn with me back to Luke 1, uh, 27 and uh, verse 34, we find this threefold mention. In verse 27, the scripture says that Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And then you go down a little further in this event, and you read verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? I'd like you to turn back to Matthew chapter 21, or Matthew chapter 1, And I believe our first uh, passage may be um, around verse 18. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, 23, and 25. As we look at those passages, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... Now, clearly, the the reference here is to sexual intercourse and the consummation of the marriage. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And then, um, looking down in the section, uh, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Now, this 
that took place was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. When I first started out in my preparation for ministry, I was in a uh, Christian college that was uh, supposed to be uh, true to the word, but turned out to be quite liberal. And uh, as I began to get into some of the classwork and discovered some of the teaching that was going on, um, things were pointed out that were fallacies in the virgin birth concept. One of them was Isaiah 7.14, and the point was made that the word that Isaiah uses in the Hebrew language, Alma, is a word that simply means a young unmarried woman. And it doesn't say that it's a virgin or not, it's just a young unmarried woman. Well, my kind of response to that is, if you were young and unmarried in Israel in the days of Isaiah, you had better be a virgin. But anyway, that was, uh, that's another story. And they point to the fact that not long after that, Isaiah's own wife conceived and uh, had some children, and that was um, kind of the answer to this prophecy. But she was not a young unmarried woman. She was married to Isaiah. And the prophecy had further reaching uh, emphasis as Matthew refers back to it in the first chapter by inspiration and says this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction. A virgin will conceive and bear a child and you will call his name Jesus. Others have even called into question the Greek words of the New Testament. What do they really mean in their essence? But I want to submit to you this morning that biblically it does not matter the debate over what the words may mean or may not mean. What matters is the testimony of both Mary and Joseph that lead us to the unmistakable conclusion of the significance of the wording. What sense would it make for Joseph to say, and so he took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until after the birth of Jesus? If that does not mean avoidance of sexual intercourse, what could it possibly mean? Joseph is very clearly stating the case with Mary, that she had never had relationships, sexual relationships with a man. Mary herself, and surely she knew what was going on inside of her, and Luke uh, is the doctor who is recording this event, and Mary says to the angel Gabriel after this announcement that you're going to conceive in your womb and have a child. And she says, how can this be? Since I am a virgin, there is no question from either Mary's testimony or Joseph's statement, there is no question that the impact of Scripture, the intent of Scripture, is to lead us to the unmistakable conclusion that the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, until after the time of his birth, never had sexual intercourse. She was a virgin in every sense of the word. That is terribly important to recognize that Scripture 
does not leave any wiggle room here. There's no chance to reinterpret this in any direction. It is very clear in what it says. Now, the question then arises, how do we explain the body of Christ and, and the origin of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a human being? And um, that raises some very interesting questions and uh, some very interesting problems. Because you see, Jesus, according to the scripture, is without sin. He is sinless. And the question immediately comes, did Mary contribute to the humanity of Jesus while the Holy Spirit brought in the God equation to make him the God-man, fully God and fully man? A little bit of logic and reasoning will quickly show you the fallacy of that kind of thinking. But before we even get to the logic of it, let me ask you a question. I know the scripture says that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. So death is passed upon all men because all have sinned. And that the Bible lays the blame for the fall of man squarely at the feet of Adam, not Eve. But seriously, ladies... Do you think you don't have a sin nature? <laughs> Would you like to give public testimony to that? <laughs> I don't think there's any of you ladies here this morning that do not have a sin nature. Because sin has infected the entire human race. Even though Adam is the responsible party at that tree in the Garden of Eden, it is his decision to make, and he didn't make it. And the Bible says, as a consequence of that, sin came upon the whole human race. Some people view that as what theologians call the federal headship. In other words, he was assigned the responsibility to make a choice, and everybody else had to live with it. He made a bad choice, and we got assigned the blame. Let me tell you something. We didn't just get assigned the blame. We got the problem. It's not just that God said, okay, Adam, you blew it, so all of your kids, I'm, I'm charging them with your sin. I, I don't know about you, but that always bothered me. When I was in theology classes, it was like, that's not fair. I wasn't there, and I didn't get a chance to make a choice. Why would I get blamed for something Adam did? Well, the reality is, is I'm not blamed for something Adam did, but the something that Adam did infected me. I think it's a good analogy to look at sin with the disease model. All of you are familiar with the fact that oftentimes parents who have AIDS, mothers who have AIDS, give birth to children who have AIDS from birth because that virus is in the system and it is passed on to the offspring. There are many other problems that are also transmitted in the same way. So that whatever is infecting the mother is transmitted to the offspring, to the child. The problem with sin in the fall of man, Adam and Eve in the garden, is that when Adam sinned, the Holy Spirit vacated the premises 
Adam was separated from God. They were driven out of the garden. Adam was now infected with rebellion, with independence, with autonomy, with the idea that I want to be my own God and make my own decisions. That was not just a choice of his. It was an infection that affected his whole life. And God designed us to reproduce after our own kind. And when Adam and Eve reproduced and had offspring, those children were born with the infection. So that sin has been passed to all men. We need to be very clear in our missiology. People around the world that have never heard of Jesus Christ are not going to go to hell because they've never heard of Jesus. That is not the problem. The problem is, they have sin. And because they inherited the infection, they make choices that are sinful. And knowing the law of God, which is written in their heart, they defy it willingly. And they're guilty. And God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. So it's not the problem that we're a bigoted bunch of Christian jerks and the rest of the world doesn't believe like we do, so God's going to smack them down. It's that they're infected. And they need a Savior. They need an inoculation. They need deliverance. They need healing. They need something to change the reality. And that something is faith in Jesus Christ and the cleansing of His blood atonement. The whole purpose of mission is to proclaim the good news that though you have a fatal disease, God has a remedy. And that remedy is in Jesus Christ. We have to be very clear about that. So that brings me back to Mary. Mary has the infection. Okay, how can she contribute to the body of Jesus if she is infected with sin and Him be sinless? The Roman Catholic Church very clearly recognized the problem. And so, as, as they often do, they invented a theology to work around it. They decided that since um, Mary had to be sinless in order to have a sinless birth of the Savior, they had to get Mary sinless. So they came up with the idea of the Immaculate Conception that her mother, St. Anne, was specially protected by God during conception of Mary, so that Mary was protected from original sin, never got it, never got the infection, and so Mary was born without original sin, and the guilt and consequence of it, and therefore, when it came time for her to give birth to Jesus, she, as a sinless contributor to this equation, could have a child that did not have sin. And this is all still predicated upon the concept that Mary is actually contributing to the body of Christ. I I don't want to talk about how weird that is, but, I mean, just think about it for a moment. That would not make him fully God and fully man. That would make him half God and half man. Because we don't have 23 chromosomes. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And a human being cannot be formed from an ovum. It takes a man and a woman. That's the only way you can get a person. What Mary offered was her womb. 
And the scripture says very plainly that God, the Holy Spirit, planted in her the body of Jesus Christ. Neither she nor Joseph had anything to do with it. Now the immediate next question is, well, how can he be fully human if neither one of them had anything to do with it? Well, I hope you already understand the problem with trying to go the other direction. That just simply doesn't work. But the fact is, God created the first Adam. From the dust of the ground, he formed Adam, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that first man became a living soul. If you look at what Paul says in Corinthians uh, chapter 15, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So we have the first Adam and we have the last Adam. And then he says the first man is from the earth. God took the dust of the ground and formed a man out of him, a grown man, by the way, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The second man is from heaven. The second man made upon the blueprint of the first man. Fully and completely as human as Adam. The second man, the last Adam. It's important to recognize that what God did was He created a whole new race of human beings in Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn from the dead. And we who follow Him become a part of that great heritage. And that He planted in the womb of Mary a body, 23 pairs of chromosomes, a developing, gestating human being that was placed within the womb of Mary who offered herself in submission to God. Lord, let it be unto me as you desire. I am your servant. Who offered herself as a, shall I say, surrogate mom to give birth to the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. And the fact is that that person that was developing in the womb of Mary had the body of a developing infant that was fully human, but who was also God, fully God, come in human flesh. John tells us in his gospel, in beginning was the word and the Word was with God, proston theon, face to face with God. That implies equality. And the Word was God. And there John uses a Greek construction that is the uh, imperfect uh, tense suggesting the linearity or the constant uh, ongoing action in the past time. We could translate it with some extra wording and be accurate by saying, in beginning, the beginning, no, any beginning, pick a beginning, he was already there. In beginning was God, was the Word, and the Word was equally face to face with the Father, and the Word was always being what he always is, God himself. So that that one that was now inhabiting the developing embryo in the womb of Mary was the eternal God in human flesh. As John goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. 
Glory as of an only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. So why do we have to have a virgin birth? Why do we have to have the deity of Christ? Well, the scripture says the soul that sins will die. And if there is to be a substitutionary sacrifice, that substitute must be a fully human person who has faced all the trials, all the difficulties, all the temptations that we have faced and that Adam faced, but rather than capitulating to the wiles of the enemy, has successfully navigated the path without ever once giving in. If you look at that temptation in the Garden of Eden, you notice what it says about their consideration of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It looks good for food, and it's pleasant to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. And if you look at Jesus in the temptation experience in the wilderness, you find the same three approaches by the enemy. Make the stones bread, good for food. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Desirable and pleasant to have. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple, make a dazzling entrance into the middle of Jerusalem, and you can be the ruler of all the earth. Able to make one wise and powerful. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the same three sins three avenues of sin that every human being faces. It is the same avenue of sin that our Lord Jesus Christ faced, not just in the wilderness, but growing up as a teenager in the wilderness all throughout his life. He faced those same three avenues of temptation time and again, but the difference is every single time Unlike the first Adam, who also had no sin nature until he fell, the second man turned to God and by the power of the Holy Spirit said no. So that from the moment of his birth until the moment of his death, when he cried, it is finished on the cross, he never once violated the will of God in thought or word or deed. He was entirely and completely sinless. He was able to be the substitutionary sacrifice because he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But how could he die for the sins of all of humanity and the whole race? Because surely his blood is sufficient. It is true that not every human being will trust him as Lord and Savior, will accept the inoculation, will take the cure. But the fact is, there is available serum, if I can keep my analogy going. It is efficacious, it is potentially possible for every human being on the planet to be forgiven and cleansed of sin because He is the infinite God-man. And in His person is the capacity of infinite suffering, but also of infinite grace. And He is able 
to give himself for the sins of all of humanity. I mentioned to you J. Gresham Machen many years ago uh, was uh, challenged uh, and uh, gave an address dealing with the question of liberalism versus what he called uh, Christianity because he didn't believe liberals could be Christians. And what he said was this, whatever decision is made, the issues should certainly not be obscured. The issue between liberal thinking and biblical Christianity. The issue does not concern individual miracles, even so important a miracle as the virgin birth. It really concerns all miracles, and the question concerning all miracles is simply the question of the acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. Reject the miracles, and you have in Jesus the fairest flower of humanity who made such an impression upon his disciples that after his death they could not believe he had perished but experienced hallucinations in which they thought they saw him risen from the dead. Accept the miracles and you have a Savior who came voluntarily into this world for our salvation, suffered for our sins upon the cross, rose again from the dead by the power of God and ever lives to make intercession for us. The difference between those two views is the difference between two totally diverse religions. It is high time that this issue should be faced. It is high time that the misleading use of traditional phrases should be abandoned and men should speak their full mind. Shall we accept the Jesus of the New Testament as our Savior? Or shall we reject Him with the liberal church? Nearly a hundred years later, Dr. Al Mohler, who was a recent past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, both a philosopher and a theologian of some excellence in his blog on Tuesday, December 23, 2008, penned these words, Can a true Christian deny the virgin birth? The answer to that question must be a decisive no. Those who deny the virgin birth reject the authority of Scripture deny the supernatural birth of the Savior, undermine the very foundations of the Gospel, and have no way of explaining the deity of Christ. Anyone who claims that the virgin birth can be discarded, even as the deity of Christ is affirmed, is either intellectually dishonest or theologically incompetent. Friends, the virgin birth is essential to the truth of the gospel and the Jesus Christ whom we follow as our Lord and Savior. Now, you may be here today, and this may be the first time that you're hearing this with such clarity, and you say, I think I've trusted Jesus, and I believe that I'm his follower, but I never thought the virgin birth was important. Am I saved? And I want to say to you that we have a very gracious God, and he allows time for growth and development. But here's what I will tell you, and I will do it unequivocally. If the Holy Spirit of God is truly resident in your life, if you have repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and truly embraced Him as your Savior, 
What you will be hearing resounding in your spirit, even as I speak, is yes and amen. And you will know today of certainty in your heart that Jesus is the virgin-born, sinless Son of God, fully man and fully God. And if you have no witness in your spirit of the truthfulness of the message that is clearly taught in Scripture, how can this be since I am a virgin? And Joseph kept her a virgin until after the birth of Jesus. Then you do need to examine your relationship with God. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name, thanking you for the truthfulness of your word and asking you to make us those who are strong in faith. Many, many, many today are struggling and they are confused and they are questioning. And I pray that we will be able to give an answer to those who ask for the hope that is in us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.